So I want to say an additional welcome to our Facebook friends and those who are following us on Twitter. Welcome, and we're glad that you've joined those who are present in the room here with us this morning. As many of you may know, our senior leader, Amanda Poppy, is this week uh, out supporting those who are resisting the pipeline, and she is there in Standing Rock supporting those others, and so we are so pleased that she is carrying our solidarity to them this morning. It's also my pleasure this morning to welcome to our platform Sincere Karibo, who is the Social Justice Coordinator at the American Humanist Association. Sincere is a longtime humanist activist and writer, uh, particularly about atheism, race, and culture with an intersectional approach. And so he's going to give us a lot of really good things to think about and chew on this morning. His work can be found on thehumanist.com, Everyday Feminism, and Pathios, among other media. And in 2014, Sincere received the O'Hare Scholarship from American Atheists in recognition of his activism promoting the civil rights of atheists and the separation of religion from government. And so, Sincere, we are so pleased that you are here this morning, and we look forward to your words with us. So for those who were here for the first rendition of this, I added some notes and I actually forgot to mention some things, so it'll be like a new talk for you too. <laughs> so the talk that, again, it's titled Examining Identity to Embrace a More Inclusive Humanism. So the talk is based on a paper that I wrote and presented at a humanist symposium at Rice University for the Institute of Humanist Studies. It'll be the, the final edition, because they're gonna bring all the papers together and it's gonna be a publication, that's gonna be late fall of this year. So what I'm going to be doing is an abridged version of that, because it's like 20 pages. So this is going to be the Cliff Notes version of my paper. So the work I do for the American Humanist Association is basically our humanist philosophy. My job is to try and find ways that we can live it and embody it in more socially active ways that impacts uh, uh, marginalized groups. So we have, among other things, these aren't the only things that we focus on, but the three major social justice adjunct groups that we have are the Black Humanist Alliance, the LGBTQ Humanist Alliance, and the Feminist Humanist Alliance. And so when these initiatives were first introduced last year, there was a considerable backlash from those who identify as humanists. And so what I wanted to do was read some of the responses. And by some, I do mean just a small sample size, because there was hundreds. And these, this is actually the clean version of some of the responses that we received uh, from, from online. And if you want to look at it later on, I can show you these. So one guy says, one guy says, humanism is supposed to be all-inclusive, so why exactly are we segregating? Another guy says, 
Humanism encompasses all people. Why make special groups within humanity? Another guy says, let's just segregate a movement meant to bring everyone under one banner. He, he was being sarcastic. <laughs> one guy says, we didn't know our society is so divided until we came across your tweet, exclamation point. Another guy, and I know him and I know the organization he works with, Duncan Bell. He says, as a member of the British Humanist Association, I find this US subdivision well divisive. Another guy says, white humanist alliance on the doorsteps then, question mark. And lastly, one guy says, wow, this is extremely racist, sexist, and heterophobic, and, and he was being serious. So it's no coincidence that the vast majority, beyond what I just mentioned here, the vast majority of the backlash that we received were from white men. But the question is, why? And so <clears throat> something that comes to mind is a book that I read by Angela Davis called Freedom is a Constant Struggle. And so paraphrasing something that she said, keeping in mind what I just read to you, she talked about how universal proclamations, oh, and this is to provide a little bit of context. She was responding to something Hillary Clinton had said, this is 2015, I believe, uh, when she was um, campaigning or whatnot, and she, and where Hillary Clinton said all lives matter. And so in response to that, Angela Davis, where she was giving a speech, she brought that up and she said, she, I'm paraphrasing, she said, universal proclamations bolster inequality and preserve cultural prejudices. Critical engagement of oppressive systems requires us to understand the tyranny of the universal. I found when she said this very powerful, the tyranny of the universal. So most of our history, US history, the, what we understand to be human, humanness, that wasn't extended to black people or people of color. And to some extent, in some ways in today's society, that still holds true. So the movement, like when she referenced All Lives Matter, the movement for black lives, when they state black lives matter, it's not like these issues are new. These issues have always existed. It's just that technology is new, social media is new. All the ways in which these things are shown to the world are new because of newer ways of broadcasting it to the world, but they've always existed. So statements like all lives matter, Oh we're, oh, we're all just human. Um, oh, we're, we're all just Africans. Uh, they make t-shirts. And one person in particular said, I'm going to paraphrase, but basically he spoke about how, well, if you aren't just going to refer to people as homo sapien, then I don't want to hear what you have to say when it comes to identity. And that person, I'm sure a lot of people know, is Sam Harris. And so I responded to that, and people still give me flack about my response to that. My response is on the Huffington Post, actually. His, I was responding to a podcast that he did. This is so, that's pretty bad. But if you want to, <laughs> you can go to his website, his podcast thing, Waking Up, whatever it's called. And he has a podcast episode called Racism and Violence in America. 
And so my response to that on the Huffington Post is the problem with Sam Harris's um, whatever, um, whatever the name of the title was. And so I go through and I break down certain issues. I couldn't go over the entirety of his episode because then it would have been a book. So I, it was just an article that teased out key issues with some of the problems that, that I saw with what he was saying. And one of those issues were this, the tyranny of the universal when he was sitting there talking about homo sapien, how, oh, well, we should just, you know, don't worry about identities. So in, in, in relation to that, he was talking about identity, he was also talking about identity politics. So in relation to that, it's, it's funny because the phrase identity politics has become more uh, an easy access punching bag, despite most who use it fail to actually adequately articulate their object of critique. And there's, identity politics is a blanket term, and it's used to invoke a vague variety of cherry-picked ideas of political failings. Problem with it is that there's no easier foe to defeat than one construed from ambiguity because the shortcomings are whatever you imagine them to be. So there are several reasons why folks trivialize or denigrate identity. I don't have time to explore all of them now, uh, like I flesh out in my paper, but I, I will speak to two issues. One being that there are indistinct ideas of what identity means in relation to social grouping, and it's due to a comfort that folks have with the relative status in society that shields them from the adverse impact certain identities have on life circumstances. Another reason that I speak about my paper, but I'm not going to go into now, is the discourse of individualism, which is so deeply ingrained in our society. And, uh, and, and someone who, you can actually, since my paper is not accessible right now, someone, you can actually look this up uh, when you get home or whenever. The academic Robin D'Angelo, she wrote something on the discourse of individualism, and she broke down the issues with it, like, thoroughly. And that paper is called, Why Can't We All Just Be Individuals? Question mark. So if anyone was interested in that, she's, I love her, she does excellent work. I'll be, I'll be on a panel with her later on this year, actually, I love her work. So when we're talking about humanism, we're talking about oh, humanism is premised on human capacity, human accountability, social responsibility, compassion towards others to lead ethical lives based on that human-derived reason and that, <clears throat> excuse me, in that empathy that doesn't rely on supernaturalism or religious dogma. So the thing about that is that that's our, this is the things that we state, these are only words, this is our philosophy, our imagined philosophy, but in order for humanism to live up to this declaration, it's imperative that our social concern, that our compassion, our respect for others, and our de dedication to do good is based on a greater appreciation of identity and how this impacts human life in our social reality. So here are some notes that I have from my paper on identity. 
when it comes to identity, and by extension, identity politics. This is what we are and what we are not discussing. Identities are based on cultural context, social history, and lived experiences. Experiences correlated with identity provide both an epistemic and political basis for understanding. Identities are references to objective and causally relevant features of a shared reality. Identities are the conditional product of social interaction and social institutions, subject to occupying particular locations within time, social space, and historical communities. A stumbling block for some people when we're talking about identity is this point right here. Identities are not an attempt to reduce an entire group to an essential, coherent monolith. To share an identity with others is to share in only one facet of a multifaceted reality. There is no contradiction between identifying with specific social groups and being a complex, unique individual. When we discuss identity, what we've, I've been referring to is I'm talking about common identity, which is different from individual identity. So I don't mean to complete those things. So when we're talking about common identity, we're describing what's imposed on us by an established history of social standards, stratification, controlling images, and stereotypes. Mexican philosophers Samuel Ramos and Leopoldo Zia both invoke existentialism and psychoanalysis in order to explore identity as a form of mediation between self-knowledge and as well as national and cultural identities. Identities are real in the sense of being lived, of producing real effects, and of constituting key features of our shared reality. You can also consider identity identities as indexical entities. Identity group experiences fundamentally shape our possibilities, our perceptions, our ambitions, our the kinds of inquiry that we engage in. This is why it's important for us to share our experiences, those from marginalized groups. For me as a black man, when we're talking about the anxiety and the fear, the paranoia that I feel when I have been pulled over in the past or when I've had a police officer pull out his weapon on me when I was sitting in the parking lot looking up directions on my phone at night. These things, I could list numerous things. This is why these things are important. But my experiences also differ from those, from, from black women because racism that they experience is also um, interconnected with sexism. And then you could take it a step further and talk about a black lesbian woman and how her experience is going to be different from those who are black women but are hetero. Then you can go a step further and talk about a black lesbian atheist woman and how her experiences will differ from those who are not. So 
that, that also reminds me of something when I was talking about black women. When you consider certain examples that we see every single day, like Serena Williams, who's one of the greatest athletes of all time, and the ways in which the media and folks denigrate her. And, and it's due to those identities. You can look at Michelle Obama and everything that she endured those eight years at the White House. It's the same thing there. Leslie Jones, I don't know if people are familiar with that, but when it came to Ghostbusters, when it came out, and the ways in which she was singled out, uh, the criticism that she received, at one point she turned off her Twitter because the, the criticisms that she received was both racialized and it also was based on sexism. So to affirm we have an identity or to state we're a part of a particular identity group is simply to agree that we have a location and social space. What's important to remember is that we all see the world through filters that are influenced by our social positions within society. Identity properties necessarily influence one's worldview. Our social positions are inextricably linked to our identities. These social positions obscure our emotional and intellectual connection to other social realities we don't occupy. I mean, we could go into numerous examples of this. This is why male privilege is a thing uh, in the ways in which society is dominated by uh, male-centeredness, as Soraya Kimberly puts it. And the same can be said for Christian hegemony and the ways in which those who don't fit inside that box are treated or viewed differently. And we can continue to go on down that line. Intersectionality is an articulation of the ways in which oppressive institutions interconnect. We can't appreciate uh, the significance of intersectionality until we appreciate the impact identity has on our reality because it literally shapes our world, our environment, our perceptions, our daily life, even politics, well, especially politics. Those, for those occupying marginalized identities, it's vital they raise awareness about issues that specifically threaten their survival due to cultural attitudes, government oversight, and social systems that exist. Mm. I already spoke to some of the reasons. But this is why feminism is important. This is why speaking to issues that people want to ignore or, or trivialize or deny exists. Those who say all lives matter, those who say, oh, well, we're all just human, they're doing those things. It's all intentional. So when we go back to some of the responses that AHA received, what do you think? We can already tell their social position in our reality now, but when those who embody a more inclusive humanism, how do you think that they should respond or would respond or perceive? the AHA saying, oh, well, yeah, there, it's not like the AHA isn't now going to confront 
religious hegemony when it influences legislation. We're still doing those things. But we're also saying, okay, we appreciate the fact that there's it's clear that there's certain inequalities in the world that we want to address. So we are trying to better uh, speak to those truths through the Black Humanist Alliance, the Feminist Humanist Alliance, and the LGBTQ Humanist Alliance. Now again, those aren't the only things that we are uh, working on. We also worked on, and we continue to work with, the indigenous resistance. I was at Standing Rock uh, for a week at the end of October into early November. It's freezing cold. And <laughs> I was there, and someone who is actually a, a board member of our Feminist Humanist Alliance, her name is Desiree Kane. She was a key, she's indigenous. She's, she was a key organizer with the Standing Rock uh, indigenous resistance there. And now she, she, I mean, this is all she does. This is her work. She is so subsumed within the indigenous resistance. She was in Standing Rock for seven months. And once she left there, she went to Texas for, I can't remember what's going on there right now. Something's going on there, I can't remember. But she was down there. And then she also went to some protest action in Canada. She's there right now, and she's gonna go back to Texas. And then she's a part of a network of activists that will actually be based in DC to protest Trump for the next, for the rest of his presidency. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> so, society confers a surplus of value to some identities while courting a deficit of value to others. And so, inclusive humanism recognizes this and seeks ways to remedy it. And that's what we're trying to do. And that's obviously something people here at Washington Ethical Society is trying to do. So, in addition to these groups, like I said, we also work to try and build partnerships with certain organizations that are out there doing social justice actions. And so I'll give you some examples of some of the work that we're doing. We have partnered with NARAL, Pro-Choice America. And so we, we help them with phone banking. And when I say we, I mean uh, our AJ chapters, our affiliates, and our increasing number of humanist volunteers. And it should come as no shock that those volunteers have steadily increased since um, Trump was elected president. And there are a few different ways that we are working with NARAL, but one of them is phone banking, basically promoting the issue, specific issues that they have, or initiatives that they have going on, whatever that may be, and trying to get more folks involved in legislation that they're trying to fight or push. And when it comes to, what else do we have going on? Oh, the National LGBTQ Task Force. We are working with them. They are, they are awesome, can I just say that? And I know Kaylee Whalen, she's the one, she's the main contact that I have. She actually used to work with AJ. She's a transgender activist, she's awesome. And so we're trying to plug more humanists into their initiatives that they have going on throughout the country. And we're also working with the Trans United Fund. 
and same thing with them trying to help raise awareness for their issues and and they need volunteers for various things internal with technical assistance with uh, trying to promote through social media etc cetera, etc cetera. so for anyone who would be interested in any of those things and we have other initiatives too and you can just email me or visit our, our website you can visit American Humanist Association website and the initiatives that I spoke to earlier they all have their own websites so black humanist blackhumanist.org uh, lgbtqhumanist.org and the feminist humanist feministhumanist.org, something like that. Anyway, if you if you were to Google it, whatever, it'll come right up because it's the only one. <laughs> so, yeah, that's my talk. <laughs>